So we had some not so good news in our household this week. My husband lost his job this week, which anybody who has ever lost a job knows that that is. Usually it's very unexpected. This was very unexpected. It's devastating. It kind of rocks your world, honestly, when either you or your spouse lose their job. My husband um, is a medical provider. I've mentioned this a few times. I know I don't talk about him a lot on the show due to privacy. I mean, I've chosen what I do for a living, but my husband uh, did not make that same choice. My child did not make that same choice. So any attention that's given to them is due to my choices. So I've, I've thought since I entered the public eye that it's just fair to them to keep them off screen, off my social media to protect their privacy, not not just in his career interests, but just because I get a lot of death threats, I get a lot of hate, I get a lot of nasty things that are said to me online. And as I said, this is what I've chosen to do. This is my calling, this is my career, and I understand that that hatred comes with the territory, and that's not true for what he's chosen to do with his career, like I said, which is a medical provider. Um, I have so much respect for this man's career. He, we got When we got married, he was a naval officer, medical provider in the Navy. Um, he served in the Navy for years. After he got out of the Navy, he worked um, as a contractor for Border Patrol also as a medical provider. He provided uh, health care to the migrants who were brought to, well, AOC's infamous detention facilities or concentration camps, as she called them. Basically, he was giving medical care to the migrants who were crossing the border and being detained by Border Patrol. He's worked in orthopedic surgery. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me even to come on this show and talk about something this personal. I mean, we normally talk about politics and we normally talk about how politics hypothetically or um, vaguely impacts our personal lives, but when it actually does impact your life, when it actually does hurt you, when it actually, when a politician's actions and their dictates and their mandates actually do harm you and your family, it really feels like a punch in the gut. So you probably can tell where this is going, but my husband, being a medical provider, lost his job due to the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. And I want to talk about this a little bit, what exactly happened and what this means and the broader implications of what is happening, not just to us. We're not an isolated incident. We're not the first and not the last that this is going to happen to. This is happening to a lot of medical providers and healthcare workers across our nation. It's simply egregious uh, to see. And I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about that in depth tonight. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. By the way, I also want to talk about Time Magazine's man of the year, Elon Musk, and why the left, and by the left, I mean both the blue check marks on Twitter and the left in our government, Senator Elizabeth Warren, why they're going crazy over Time Magazine choosing Elon Musk as their man of the year. We're going to talk about that in a little while, but like I said, I want to get a little more in-depth about what happened um, to my husband, how he lost his job due to the vaccine mandate, and what this means in a broader sense. So my husband lost his job this week due to the vaccine mandate. Um, the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. But here's what happened. Here, here's what was so strange about what happened. My husband had applied for a religious exemption to the COVID-19 vaccine. This was a while back. And that religious exemption was approved. It was approved. This is, and th- this is what he wrote. So let me preface this by saying, I've helped numerous people construct their application for a religious exemption to the COVID-19. And I always tell people, be as brief and concise as you can. We all have... Um, or you might have 
a longer argument, a series of bullet points, a lot of reasons why you don't want the COVID-19 vaccine. But remember that the people who are reading your exemption request forms are looking for ways to disqualify you. They're not actually interested in why your religious beliefs are sincere or examples of the consistency of your beliefs across all aspects of your life. They're not actually interested in your reasons. You're not gonna change their mind. They probably have very different views on this than you do, whether it's the vaccine itself, whether it's religious views. So I usually advise people to keep this as short as you can and almost don't, and almost don't include um, a lot of the information that you want. Just say, I'm writing, I'm asking for a religious exemption for the reason that you're asking for the religious exemption and leave it at that. And then just state, my viewpoint is consistent throughout my life. Well, it's funny because when my husband was filling out his religious exemption request, uh, I don't think he asked my advice, even though I've done this before. And this is a perfect example. Again, since I'm talking about my husband, making an exception to my normal uh, privacy rule, I'm at least going to say this is why we're perfect for each other. Because even without talking, we had the same sorts of strategy to get this religious exemption request approved. This is the one line he wrote. And anybody who's filled out these forms given by companies or, you know, even, even um, companies that aren't healthcare organizations, they don't give you a lot of room to write your answer anyway. They usually give you just one line, like one sentence that you can write. So this is the one line that my husband wrote on his religious exemption request. And I quote, I object to fetal cells being used in the development and production of the COVID-19 vaccine, period. That's all he said. That's all he said. Now, he was completely accurate. We know that aborted fetal cells, the aborted fetal cell lines were used in the testing of the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So it doesn't matter what the left says or what the fact checkers tell you, this certainly is tinged with abortion. There is um, an evil act, a grave moral sin that was associated with this, the production of this vaccine. It's a completely valid reason not to want to take this vaccine, a completely valid reason to get an exemption, to ask for an exemption and to receive one. And I, I know that some people will say, well, listen, this was decades ago. These were uh, abortions from the 1970s. One of them wasn't even, didn't even happen in the United States. And that's true. That's true. But did that make them any less living human beings? Did that make them any less individual people? Did that make them any less babies that died at the hands of an abortionist? And of course, the answer to that is no. I mean, the idea that an unborn baby was killed, um, you can't, kill babies to produce something else and think that the product that you have produced is morally okay. I mean, th these are the viewpoints that lots of Americans, lots of Christians, lots of um, pro-lifers in our country believe in a deep and sincere sense. It's simply unethical the way that these vaccines were created. So fast forward, again, this religious exemption was approved. He got approval from this. Um, he also, by the way, is concerned about the side effects. I mean, he's in the age range. He's a young man. He's in the age range for increased risk of myocarditis um, from the vaccine, triggered by the vaccine. He's also in the, in the age range where COVID-19 does not pose a particular threat of fatality to him. He's very fit. He's very muscular. He has no comorbidities. You know, he's about as low risk for COVID um, as you can possibly be. He also, by the way, has natural immunity to COVID. So when I'm saying all this, this is not hypothetical, this is not projection, it's from experience. We know what risk COVID posed to him because he had it and he obviously recovered from it. Um, so he's in, the, he's in the age range for myocarditis risk. He also, being a medical provider, being 
um, as into research as he is. He's very thorough. He does his due diligence. He is the kind of medical provider that you would want taking care of you and your family member if you have any kind of healthcare problem because you know that he will listen to you. He will research. He will explore every possibility um, in his diagnosis and then treat you accordingly. He, Like I said, he's a wonderful man. That's why I married him. But in a professional sense, as objective as I can be, he is a phenomenal healthcare provider. And he also read in a paper about how spike protein, the spike protein in the mRNA vaccine particularly, directly damages the inside of blood vessels, which can lead to, well, clotting, obviously, blood clots. Um, okay, so this, this, is, this is the exemption request. He didn't put anything about the side effects in, but that was just for your information, conversations that my husband and I had leading up to this. So his exemption was approved. Great, keep doing what you're doing. Um, then he received communication saying that the exemption, which had previously been approved, was revoked. It was revoked, which seems odd. It seems odd that you would approve someone's religious exemption request and then take it away um, sometime later. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you why this happened, because it's ridiculous. So the reason that my husband's religious exemption request was approved and then revoked was um, because he was told it would provide the organization with, quote, undue hardship in order to accommodate his religious beliefs. Undue hardship in order to accommodate. So I, I wanted to talk about this for just a minute because, as I mentioned, he has natural immunity to COVID-19. Natural immunity has been shown in multiple studies to not only be as good as vaccinated immunity or artificially induced immunity, but to be stronger. There was a study of, out of Israel that showed that natural immunity was, what, six times more robust than vaccinated immunity? I mean, this is, this, is, this is also science. This is something that virologists have known for a long time. Typically, natural immunity is stronger than vaccinated immunity. So there's an unscientific element from the get-go there. But the accommodations that uh, my husband expressed, by the way, that he was perfectly willing to take part in or continue taking part in because he's done this the entire pandemic, um, wearing all the PPE, you know, no matter if you think that masks or BS or face shields are ridiculous or, you know, gloves, whatever. Um, I know that's standard in, in the medical field, but he, he you know, he, he made sure that it was clear that, you know, just because he declined to take the vaccine because he had a religious objection to it, he was happy to take part in anything else, whether it was weekly testing, whether it was wearing PPE, whether it was not going to work when he was sick. Um, and he also communicated, and this I think is, this is, just funny because the left or I, it doesn't even have to be the left, the other side, the pro-vaccine mandators don't really have an answer to this. He also expressed that, remember, the patient can get the COVID-19 vaccine if they're afraid of getting COVID. Um, now, of course, you and I know that if you get the COVID-19 vaccine, it's not exactly what it was promised to be originally. Um, but it is a funny point to make because there's no response to it, really. But he, he wasn't pithy. He wasn't political about any of this. Any of this. And um, he worked, he's worked through the entire pandemic with COVID patients since the beginning. As I said, he used to be a contractor with the Border Patrol. And I mean, we know that COVID-19 positive patients were, were coming through the border before we even knew that COVID-19 was so widespread in our country. I mean, he's been working with active COVID cases for a year and a half. He worked in an emergent setting with COVID patients um, throughout both waves. I mean, th this is what he did. He worked with these patients. And this is before the vaccine was available than before it was widely available. And these pro-vaccine mandators were perfectly fine, quote unquote, quote, putting him at risk and putting the patients at risk when he wasn't vaccinated, when he was caring for them during the last year and a half. But now 
now that they have this vaccine that they can offer, it's widely available. Anybody who wants it can get it. Healthcare provider, patient, anyone who wants it can get it. Suddenly he's unsafe to himself and to the patient to take care of people because he won't follow their mandate, because he declines to participate in something that he feels is a moral abomination because it's associated with an aborted baby. The hypocrisy of this. I know I've talked about this hypothetically, but it hits home in a completely different way when it impacts your family. When your husband tells you that he's, lo- he's actually lost his job. It's not just a fight that you're fighting, that he's actually lost his job because of the vaccine mandate after he's worked for a year and a half, despite the fact that he has natural immunity, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he's willing to take all the precautions that we're told work, which is why there's mask mandates in California, a statewide mask mandate now. It's... It's quite something to see this fight brought to your own front door. And so the reason that I'm talking about, the reason I'm talking about this is, you know, my husband and I and our daughter are the fortunate ones, right? We are the fortunate ones because I work, we have my job, we have always been savers, we've been responsible investors. And so it's not gonna kill us that he lost his job. It's a disappointment, it's devastating to lose your job, but financially we're gonna be fine. But what if I was staying home with the baby? What if I didn't have a job? What if he was responsible solely for paying the mortgage? What if we had little to no savings, as most Americans don't? What if we had very little retirement savings that we could cash out at a high penalty in an emergency? What if our situation was totally different? What if he was the sole breadwinner? Imagine facing that choice. Because that's not a hypothetical choice. That's happening to families of healthcare workers all across the country, facing this choice of providing for your family when it's necessary or being forced to take a vaccine that you have a moral, a strong moral objection to because you feel that you would be complicit in an abomination, be complicit in the sin of abortion. And so, like I said, I I, I wanted to talk about this because it is a lot different when something's hypothetical than when it hits home literally when it hits home here. And I also just wanna say, we need to keep fighting this fight because we see what's happening, for example, in Australia. You see the videos of what's happening. You see the reports of the COVID, essentially the COVID detention camps, of the restricted domestic travel, of the forced vaccinations. I mean, we showed videos on the show last week of an old lady in Italy essentially being arrested because she didn't have a vaccine passport. The same thing in Germany, they stopped a woman because she didn't have a cell phone to show her green pass to show that she was vaccinated. I mean, we we see these things happening around the world and it's hard to imagine that those things would happen here, but it's also not so hard to imagine those things happen here, happening here when healthcare providers, medical providers are actually being let go from their jobs after having worked the past over a year and a half caring for COVID patients, but now despite a previously approved religious exemption request, having that request revoked because they don't want to take part in, in this morally tainted, what they believe is a morally tainted vaccine. And so keep fighting the fight because if this can happen, if, if, if our country tolerates this, then that's gonna embolden the politicians and the corporations which are pressured by the politicians. It's hard to tell, to tell the two apart at this point. It's gonna embolden them to continue to violate our liberties, to continue to try to control us, to continue to you know, force us to do things to our bodies that we don't want to do and to violate our religious beliefs if we want to participate in the larger society or provide for our families or earn a livelihood. And so keep fighting the good fight, please. 
um, as my husband will do. I mean, as I said, I'm so proud of him. He is, he couldn't be more of the perfect match for me because he is a patriot. He is a fighter. He is confident. He stands for what he believes. He's unafraid to do what's right, even in the face of consequences. And my heart literally bursts with pride to be married to this man. I, of course, support him and have his back 100% um, in this particular case, as always. Um, I do want to talk about what the radical left is trying to normalize, an idea that the radical left is trying to normalize related to vaccines. So it's shocking when radical leftist policies aren't just a threat of what we predict they will lead to, meaning we see radical leftist policies, you know, AOC's Green New Deal, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All, um, Eric Swalwell's gun control, Biden's Build Back Better, uh, any, any number of radical leftist policies, we can see for what they are and we can say, listen, if we pass these into law, then it will lead to X, Y, Z. Most of the time it will lead to socialism. Most of the time it will lead to the erosion of our constitutional rights. Um, but when it happens, not in the if-then scenario, when it actually happens, when it materializes, when it manifests on your own front door in your own family, it's particularly shocking. Um, and it's why it behooves us to be so cautious about predicting the consequences of each and every one of the policies that the radical left is proposing, because what they do first is they have to propose the policy before it becomes real life. And if we can stop the policy when it's just an idea before it becomes real life, then we can stop the negative impact, the consequences that it has on us and our family. And so what I'm talking about specifically is David Frum. David Frum is a writer at The Atlantic. Now, David Frum styles himself, if you will, as somewhat of an intellectual. Yes, LOL. Um, somewhat, somewhat of an intellectual. And so he recently wrote a piece exploring the idea of vaccine mandates and COVID in general. And I will not bore you, nor will I sport with your intelligence to read you the entire tweet thread. But I do want to pull one particular tweet from David Frum, because as I said, he styles himself as an intellectual, as a thought leader. Whether or not that's true, I'll leave you to decide. But this is what he tweeted about COVID-19 and government policies related to COVID-19 moving forward. If we could show that on the screen, this is what he says. Seems the best option is number one, keep encouraging vaccines and boosters. Two, impose vaccine mandates where it can be done. Three, otherwise return to normal as fully as we can, especially the schools. And four, let hospitals quietly triage emergency care to serve the unvaccinated last. Let hospitals quietly triage emergency care to serve the unvaccinated last. This is what the radical left is suggesting. And what they mean is based on the choices you make for your body, the health decisions that you and your family find best, maybe your religious beliefs even, your political ideology, they want you to be sent to the back of the healthcare line. These are the people who said healthcare is a right. But only, I guess, if you tow the radical leftist ideology. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. My, my, my top two thoughts are this. Number one, can you imagine if 30 years ago, HIV AIDS patients were sent quietly triaged to be treated last in emergency rooms? because they chose to engage in risky sexual behavior, which led to them contracting HIV, liberals would be outraged, and rightly so, because that would be wrong. I mean, one of the things about healthcare is healthcare 
serves people, not ideologies. Healthcare serves people based on the severity, an emergency room, for example, that's the idea of triage, serves people based on the severity of the problem that they're facing, the issue, the emergency that they're facing, healthcare um, that they need, not based on their politics or who they know or their ideology. So imagine for a second how Democrats would react if we began to triage people whose behavior led to their healthcare condition. Now you can find a million examples of this. I mean, what about overweight people? We have a we have an epidemic of obesity in our country. Are fat people in emergency rooms supposed to be, you know, sent to the back of the line because their diabetes, their heart disease, their stroke was caused by their choice to, you know, eat a box of ho-hos and a bunch of pizzas every single day, donuts for breakfast, no vegetables, no exercise. I mean, that's a specific lifestyle choice that has led to their medical emergency. It could have been avoided had they made different decisions. Is that okay to do? Of course not, it's gross, it's immoral. It's not just obesity. What about people with lung cancer? If they come to the hospital and they're having a hard time breathing because their cancer is advanced, are they supposed to be quietly triaged to be treated last because they chose to smoke their entire life? No, that's not how the healthcare system works. And if this is what liberals want our healthcare system to be, then we need to reject every liberal who has any kind of power in determining what our healthcare system is. But this is my second point. My second point is what I just described is government-run healthcare. This is Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. This is Obamacare on steroids. This is a single-payer option. This is what happens when bureaucrats in politics are the ones determining whether or not you deserve healthcare and whether or not they want to pay for it. This is the danger with the idea of so-called free healthcare because it's no longer a decision between you and your family or your doctor. It's now in a politician's hands. And is there a single politician that you can honestly say to yourself, not out loud, not on social media, but to yourself, that you would want that politician making a healthcare decision for you or your child or your spouse versus you making that for yourself or your child or your spouse? Because there's not a single politician alive who I want to make healthcare decisions for me or my husband or my baby. I want to do that myself in consultation with my husband and my family and my healthcare providers. But this is what government-run healthcare will do. And Democrats are already being open about how they want ideology and politics to play into the decision-making process of if you deserve to have healthcare and who will pay for it. We've covered many times, we've talked many times about what happened in Britain, how they ran out of money. You know, government-run healthcare is just impractical regardless of ideology because there's never going to be enough money. When you offer somebody a service for free, there's going to be an increase in demand for it. When there's an increase in demand, there's going to be, you know, an increase in the demand of how much money they're going to need to pay for it. They're never going to have enough money if something is free. And so they're going to have to ration it. They're going to have to pick and choose what procedures do you actually need versus what procedures do you actually want? And we're not talking about cosmetic surgery versus life-saving surgery. We're talking about orthopedic surgeries. You can survive with a torn ACL, but you don't want to. So is that gonna be canceled when healthcare is rationed because it's not an emergent surgery? It's technically an elective surgery. So there's a problem in practicality with government-run healthcare, but imagine that pre-existing problem, the lack of money, and the rationing, the cancellation of surgery, and the control of what healthcare you will get made not by you, not by your doctor, not even by an insurance company, but by a board of bureaucrats that work for the government. Now compound that with these bureaucrats aren't necessarily doctors. 
And even if they are, they're poisoned with ideology. They look at you not as a patient, not as a child of God. They look at you as an ideology, an ideology that maybe they think is evil. And when you look at evil, do you want to care and cure and heal and love evil? Not if you're on the left, you don't. They've shown us that time and time again. And so when you see, when we see ideas like this, this awful, this toxic, this poisonous, discriminatory, evil idea coming from David Frum to let hospitals quietly triage emergency care to serve the unvaccinated last, we have to reject this. We have to smack this down. We have to call it out for the evil that it is before it is normalized, before it takes root, before it becomes a reality that's not just vague and hypothetical, not just if this becomes reality, then it will impact us. We have to stop this before it impacts us at our front doors. It impacts our family. It impacts our spouse. It impacts our jobs. It impacts the reality of what it means to get medical care. Now, if it were up to me, I would choose my husband as, hus as man of the year. Time Magazine, however, did not consult with me before they made their choice. So they made what I would consider to probably be the second best choice. I think choosing Elon Musk as their um, time person of the year is a pretty darn good choice. The only other person, high profile person that I can think of, um, who has had a surprising positive impact, used his position of power, his platform, to question authority and to be skeptical of public health officials, especially during the COVID pandemic, is Joe Rogan. So I think he's probably a runner up in my mind. But Elon Musk is a pretty darn good, a pretty darn good choice for Time Magazine's person of the year. Um, it's also refreshing. I was kind of surprised to see this because usually Time Magazine picks people that I do not agree with. I mean, remember last year, Time Magazine picked both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as their person of the year together as a pair, one person. Um, they picked Joe and Kamala, um, which to me was just funny last year because it was so obvious that they wanted to pick Kamala Harris because they thought she was the heir apparent. She was the rising star of the Democratic Party. She was the it child to latch onto. But in, I mean, it was what, weeks, just weeks, less than a month, if that, after the election, they couldn't exactly just diss the incoming, the president-elect of the United States. So they put, they put Biden on the cover too. But anyway, usually it's a bunch of people I disagree with. For example, this year, I think their athlete of the year is Simone Biles. You remember my analysis of Simone Biles, which I stand by. I don't think we've had any information that's been released that changes my view um, on what happened with Simone Biles at the 2020 Olympic Games. They picked her as the athlete of the year as if what she did was heroic instead of, well, it's a shame. Um, Okay, but Elon Musk. So Elon Musk is, he's caused this outrage, or I shouldn't say he's caused this outrage. An outrage from the left has occurred as a result of Elon Musk being Time Magazine's person of the year. And it's pretty obvious why. First of all, Musk has been outspoken against government mandates and against COVID-19 lockdowns, government mandated COVID-19 lockdowns. He said that about COVID-19 um, vaccine mandates. He said, I believe we've got to watch out for the erosion of freedom in America. And to the radical left, this is about the worst thing that you can possibly say, even though it's perfectly common sense. This is the worst thing you can possibly say. Um, a year ago, in April of 2020, Musk slammed the lockdowns as well. He called them fascist. He said, it's breaking people's freedoms in ways that are horrible and wrong and not why they came to America or built this country. So just a little preface by about why the left is so angry, why they're so outraged, all these blue check marks. Musk is a nut. 
he's a crazy man for sure. <laughs> and I mean that in I mean that in the positive way. Also, there's some intellectual inconsistency in many of his political viewpoints. And he has a right to be intellectually inconsistent, but he generally tends to lean more conservative or at least more libertarian on many of these issues. Again, why the left hates him so much. But what's interesting about Elon Musk and why I think he deserves this honor, deserves to be chosen as the person of the year, is because he's been very open about his business endeavors being about the mission first. He actually even tweeted just this week, he tweeted Mars and cars. Those are the two things he cares about. Those are the two things that he's dedicated his life and his fortune, his brain and his innovation to achieving. And the, the word innovation here is very critical. We've talked about this before on a previous episode about masculinity and how modern men are can, are lacking this um, the frontier to be explored and how without some kind of innovation, without some kind of exploration, without some way to express their creation or their desire to build, then masculinity is diminished. And when masculinity in a culture is diminished, that of course causes um, causes that culture to look in on itself, to turn in on itself, which is somewhat what we're seeing here in the United States. But Elon Musk is the exception to this rule, um, at least at least in the public sphere, at least of people who are as wealthy as he is, who have his platform as large as he is. He's dedicated to the expansion, um, this innovation, the only thing that keeps us from turning inward on ourselves, if you will let me uh, wax philosophical for a moment. And we are obviously, in our country, starting to turn on ourselves or eat ourselves, if you will. I mean, the vaccine mandates is the perfect example of this. You know, saving lives, let me ruin yours. I mean, we are fighting ourselves. If we fall, we will fall from within. That's what I truly believe. And so Elon Musk has dedicated his life to innovation, to expansion, to creating something that nobody else has created. And he admits that he's done this not purely out of... Um, out of a sense just of business, although he's built an incredible business, but because that's what he wants to do. And he's been incredibly successful. I don't need to tell you that he's insanely rich, probably one of the richest people out there. I don't know if he is the richest right now or not, that fluctuates, but one of the richest people in the world. And like I said, well-deserving of this honor. Well, there's someone who shares my name, though not my philosophy, um, who disagrees with me. Senator Elizabeth Warren had the audacity, this is so terrifying in a public official, by the way, had the audacity to publicly tweet, she tweeted a link to the time, uh, to an announcement that Elon Musk was the person of the year. And this is what she said, and I quote, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. Freeloading, that's the word she chose. How many people, Senator Warren, does Elon Musk employ? How many people do his hobbies, basically his business interests provide for? How many families are able to buy their children clothes and food and buy a house and live their lives because he has turned his interests into a business that provides their livelihood? I mean, his mission, his mission is improving the world. He's innovating. And yes, he's made a ton of money doing that. Um, and by the way, before we get into the philosophical, I don't know if you guys saw what Elon Musk responded to Elizabeth Warren in a series of tweets. This is what he said. This just slayed me. He said, um, you remind me, he's talking to Warren, you remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. <laughs> that, that's actually what I love most about Elon Musk's Twitter is he's genuinely funny. He is genuinely a funny guy. 
um, because that's such an unexpected thing to say. And then after he tweeted that, he goes, please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. But then he got more serious and he's like, and if you opened your eyes for two seconds, you would realize I pay more taxes than any American in history this year. He goes, don't spend it all at once. Oh wait, you already did. And that ladies and gentlemen is why Elizabeth Warren hates him. She hates him because he's rich. She hates him because he doesn't like Biden's agenda because he's been very vocal opposing the Build Back Better plan that uses our money, takes our tax money, so much of our tax money, and essentially turns the United States into a socialist utopia. They are mad because he is rich, he is a skeptic, he thinks for himself, he's innovating, he doesn't need, he doesn't need their validation or their pat on the head. And by the way, Elizabeth Warren is one of the most obnoxious politicians on the planet. She's completely unlikable. She's a socialist, so her ideology is poisonous to us. And she's an enormous hypocrite. This is, this is Elizabeth Warren, who is yelling at someone else specifically as a politician. This is what I said was creepy before. When a politician singles out an individual to try to take what is theirs, she wants to steal his money. She's looking at him in the eye from her position of power in the United States Senate and saying, sir, I'm from the government and I want your money. That's so creepy. She's not just vaguely saying the wealthy, vaguely saying corporations. She's looking him in the eye on Twitter and saying, I'm doing everything I can to take what's yours and give it to myself in government. That's a dangerous politician right there. So you can laugh all you want at Elon Musk's tweets. I think they're hilarious. I think it's a great way of exposing what a horrible person, what a hypocrite, what a power-hungry um, tyrant she at least wants to be. But she, let's go back to the, the hypocrisy for a moment because this woman who, is, who hates Elon Musk for being rich, this is how she travels. Watch this video. So you, you will see Elizabeth Warren descending from the steps of a private jet, a chartered jet. How many of you have ridden on a private jet? I haven't. How many of you can afford to travel privately? That's right, because this is something that only the upper echelon, the wealthiest of the wealthy do in our country. Elizabeth Warren is too special, too powerful to travel like you and I. She wouldn't ride economy. She wouldn't sit back there with us sorry people. No, no. She, she has a private jet that carries her from place to place. And then if you watch the end of that video, you'll notice that Elizabeth Warren, when she realizes that she's being videoed, she hides behind her staff. What are you hiding from, Senator? You look fine. Your hair and makeup's done. It's not like you don't want to be photographed for some reason. The only reason that you don't want to be photographed, that you are hiding behind your staffers, is because you know you are a hypocrite. You know, as you want to implement, impose a wealth tax on other people, you are living like the wealthiest of the wealthy. Shame on you, Senator. Shame on you. There's also the matter. Elon Musk, of course, is correct. He's set to pay $15 billion in taxes this year. That's billion with a B. $15 billion. This is according to CNBC. Based on his November Twitter poll, Musk plans to sell 10% of his total Tesla shares. 
At the time, he owned just over 170 million shares, so theoretically he plans to sell about 17 million shares to fulfill his Twitter pledge. As of Tuesday morning, he sold a total of 11.9 million shares, according to insider score Verity. The sales have been spread over a dizzying 680 sales for a total of about $12.7 billion. Based on his 10% target, he would likely sell another 5 million shares, which at Monday's Monday's closing price of around $966 would be more than $4.8 billion. So... NBC goes on to say the tax bill would have been as high as $15 billion. $15 billion. That's not enough for Elizabeth Warren. This is one of those telling moments that really shows us the lack of character of Elizabeth Warren, really shows us her true agenda, her her ulterior motive. She doesn't want him to pay some so-called fair share. She doesn't believe that he has any right to his private property. She doesn't believe that he should be wealthier than she is. She doesn't believe that he should be wealthier than anybody. She thinks as a government official, she has the right. She has given herself this moral superiority to think that her taking away his profits, his wealth, is something she's allowed to do and it makes her a good person for doing it. And that is exactly the kind of politician that she, or that we should be completely afraid of. The kind of politician who thinks that they have different rights than we do and doesn't respect the fact that we have inherent human rights. All right, our next segment of the show is pretty darn interesting. It's how parents are being lied to about their kids and the COVID-19 vaccine. This is an extended segment for locals, VIPs only. You don't want to miss this. If you are not already a VIP um, supporter on the Liz Wheeler Show community on locals, please come join us now, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Between now and New Year's, you can get the great, the cheapest price ever. You can become an annual supporter for just $56 a year. That's lizwheelershow.com slash locals. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. That's all I have for today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is the Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.